Amen. We were out to eat a few weeks ago, and a lady stopped us at the table and said, uh, ask if I was the pastor at Sherwood, and I said, yes, am I in trouble or something, but uh, she started talking about the, the services, and she goes to another church in our area, and she says, you know, I, I watch your services on TV all the time, and, and uh, I, I just love the music. And uh, my wife leaned over and said, well, you ought to hear it live. <laughs> and uh, I'm always grateful for uh, music that sets the stage for the Word of God. Uh, when I went to uh, First Baptist Church of Trivial Pursuit that I pastored before I was here, uh, they asked me what my philosophy of, of music was, uh, pulpit committee, and I said, well, I said, my philosophy is, is that the music should be an appetizer that gets you ready for the entree. And the chairman looked at me and he said, son, he said, our appetizer puts them to sleep. And Lord knows I've been in those churches and uh, always glad to get out of them, but I am grateful for what our folks do and the time that they commit and the energy that they give and the service that they give in using their gifts uh, for the Lord in music. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 10, we're going to talk today about being content in whatever circumstance you are in. There's a real sense in which pressing on and contentment go together. Paul has talked about pressing toward the mark, and now he talks about contentment, and, and you cannot press without contending and can being content, and you cannot be content without pressing. There's no dichotomy here. Uh, it is a seamless message from the Apostle Paul to us about how we can live a contented life. Now, let me ask you a question. Who is the most contented person? A man with seven million dollars or a man with seven children? The answer is a man with seven children because he doesn't want any more. <laughs> it's just a thought. <laughs> I've got staff that are moving toward that seven children mark. I'm just <laughs> trying to help them. The truth of the matter is, is that there are people that have everything and lack contentment. They look for another wife or another husband or another house or another car. I, I did a funeral yesterday for a 95-year-old lady who'd been a member of this church, and she lost her husband in 1993. She lost everything in her home in 1994 in the flood. And she'd lived through the Depression, had nothing. I did her husband's funeral in 93, and... and you know, he was the kind of guy who said, you know, when we were growing up in the Depression, they were married in 1930, so we literally didn't know where our next meal was coming from. And they had a house, and they had things, and they lost it all. But she did not lose her contentment. Some of us, if we lost all that we have materially, would go down the tubes fast. Because our essence of being, our sense of purpose is tied to what we have, not who we are. 
And the truth of the matter is, you get something and you're not satisfied with it six months from now. You know, you go out and you buy into that advertisement that says, you know, you don't have any payments until March of 2005. And you think, March of 2005 is never going to come. And it does. And all of a sudden, you haven't planned on that payment that wasn't due until March of 2005. And, and, and the new has worn off. And by the time you've made the minimum payments, you need to replace it. And you still owe money on it. So things don't make us happy. The new car smell wears off in the first month. The minute you make that payment, it leaves. I know. <laughs> Trust me, I know this. It, it just leaves. And I, I've told some of you this before, but I'll, I'll tell you again if you're new. You know, I, I, would, I, I never think I will leave my wife for another woman unless they come out with a woman's perfume that's new car smell. Then I'm in trouble. <laughs> some of you are so self-righteous right now. <laughs> See, more doesn't make us happy. Bigger doesn't make us happy. We get to a point in our lives where we think, if I could just get to this level, if I could get to this pay, if I could get to this position, if I could live in this neighborhood, if I could drive this car, if I could have this stuff, and it doesn't make us happy because our economy is driven by discontent. You don't like the television you've got. You don't like the stereo you've got. You don't like the computer. And you can get a new one and you can finance it and you can get it with low interest and you can do all of these things that supposedly will make us happy. But we are the most medicated people in the world trying to ease the pain of our empty lives. We are living longer but enjoying it less. We have more to live with and less to live for. And so Paul writes this letter to tell us how we're supposed to live. And there are a couple of statements here at the beginning that I want you to write down because you, if you can hang on to these two thoughts, it will help you understand the perspective that you need to have as a believer. Number one, I can have everything and not be what I am supposed to be. I can have everything and not be what I'm supposed to be. You can have everything and not be the dad you're supposed to be, the mom you're supposed to be, the employee or employer you're supposed to be, not the Christian you're supposed to be, and have everything. I can have everything and not be the person I'm supposed to be. But secondly, I can lose everything and it not diminish me. I can lose everything and it not diminish me. Vance Havner used to say, Jesus is all I want until I find out he's all I have and then I discover he's all I really needed. You see, our sufficiency is not in the things we have or the titles that we hold. Our sufficiency is in who we are in Christ. And so the things we have don't make us real. But our society defines the successful life primarily in terms of financial security and material possessions. And you can have all of that and be empty inside. 
or dissatisfied inside. And so what we're going to look, about, look at today is the keys, really, to dealing with your life. How do you deal with debt? How do you deal with bondage? How do you deal with that craving and desire for more and more and more? How do you measure that? How do you balance that? How do you live with a godly perspective on life? Paul begins in verse 10 of chapter 4. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now listen, that verse we pull out sometimes and say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The context is in having needs in your life and situations where you're desperate in your life, where you're up against the wall. And in those situations, he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Drop down to verse 19. And my God will supply all of your needs. That does not say wants in any translation or even in the original language. My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to God and Father be the glory forever and ever Amen. The first thing about contentment is that it begins with an awareness of God's presence. It begins with an awareness of God's presence. Now, you got to back up to verse 9 because what he's saying is if we will think the right way, if we'll get our mind thinking to make the right choices in the right way at the right time, then the peace of God and the God of peace will be with us. Remember, he's promised us both. Earlier he says the peace of God, then he says the God of peace. And, and what this peace is, is not an absence of hostilities or problems. Some of us think peace means no problems, no adversity. That's, that's not what it means. It's the product of the adequacy of God. Peace in my life is an awareness of God's adequacy for every situation that I'm thrown into. That God is sufficient for me. The presence or absence of problems or things has nothing to do with peace. Peace is something that is internal. And Paul found this secret to peace, and it was the person of Jesus Christ. Now, that built an unwavering faith, no matter whether he was on Mars Hill or in a prison, whether he was abounding or abasing, whether he was... Uh, having everything he needed or in want, and it also proved to him to be a contented life. Paul found the secret of contentment. The word contentment is a satisfied state. It literally means, and you're going to have to hang on here, you'll misinterpret the word. The word contentment means self-sufficient. 
self-sufficient. The same word is used in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you. It means uh, satisfied or adequate or competent. Paul is saying that, that this contentment is a self-sufficiency. The picture here is of a city that has all the resources it needs to survive. In other words, they, they don't have to take in any imports. There's no need to go outside of that city or that province to find its needs met. All the food they need, all the supplies they need, all the water they need is self-contained. You don't have to go outside of the city to get help. So that city could survive a siege because they had a way to grow their food inside the city. They had a way to get water inside the city. And so they would not have to go out and get help from anybody else. Paul is saying that the Christ life is a life of the sufficiency within the boundaries of Christ, within the parameters of Christ, that what I need to survive and sustain and prosper in my spiritual life is all contained in the person of Jesus Christ. Some of us are always running to somebody else or somewhere else or some tape or some book or some event or some seminar trying to find that magic formula. Listen, folks, the magic formula is inside of you. It's the Holy Spirit of God who's trying to take control of you so that you can experience what he's there to provide for you. That's what he's trying to do. You see, America can never be self-sufficient. Because we cannot survive long if we were limited to our own oil. Now, we may could grow our crops and we have the water, but there are products that are outsourced because we can't get people to work in America. And so we outsource them to other countries to do things, and we're dependent on them for help. So America cannot be self-sufficient. We may be arrogant enough to think we are, but a few little things happening around the world would make us realize how quickly, and some of us survived the oil embargo where you stayed in lines for hours to get gas. And some of you lived through the Depression where you had food coupons and you had to get those rationed out to you for how much you could get during the Depression and during the war. So you understand what I'm talking about. We are not self-sufficient, but the Christian can be. America may not be self-sufficient, but the believer can be self-sufficient. And the reality is, all I need to survive is found in Christ. Now just listen for a moment. He's the hope of glory. He's the living water. He's the bread of life. He's the all-sufficient. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And so God is not only my salvation, He is my source, and He is my sufficiency. Now, here's where some people in this room today and listening by television, here's where you have the problem. You found God and Jesus Christ as your salvation, but you have not yet learned to discover him as your source and as your sufficiency. You do not depend on him. You depend on your self-sufficiency in your fleshly efforts rather than the sufficiency of God to supply all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. It's one thing to know Christ as Savior. It's a whole different level of living to know Christ as the source and as the sufficiency that I am not dependent on nor determined by what I have 
but who I have. That's the key. Secondly, contentment continues with an awareness of his presence in all situations. I can be aware of his presence, but I need to be aware of his presence in all situations. In times when I'm feeling cut off, when I'm under peer pressure, when things are not going well, when the finances are being crushed and crunched, and when I'm isolated, and when I feel alone, and when I feel let down in all situations. You see, I found the presence of Christ to be more real in crisis to me than in good times, because in good times, I'll just start coasting on my own. But when I get in a crisis and when I get in a crunch, I find God's sufficiency. Some of you have experienced the death of a loved one, and you wonder why in that moment you had a peace, and there just seemed to be an overwhelming sense of grace because you were experiencing the presence of God in a crisis moment in your life. God gave you something you didn't have as an inner resource. You weren't tough enough. You weren't strong enough. You, you wanted to collapse. You wanted to cave in under that circumstance, but God gave you an inner peace. I've stood by the bedside of people in this church going into surgery and watched them face serious, life-threatening situations with a peace of God all over their face. And somebody right down the hall that doesn't know Christ is, is, is in a screaming fit. And they're panicked and they're stressed out. And that doesn't mean that there's an absence of stress. It means that the peace of God is overwhelming the stress of the moment. Many of you know what I'm talking about. That God comes in and comes alongside of us and he gives us a sense of his presence that we would never know unless it was in all situations. It's not the same experience. It's not the same emotion as when we're in church worshiping God. It's a different sense of his presence in our aloneness. The Bible says that Abraham died full of days and was satisfied. What a way to live and die. He was a man of faith and he died satisfied. Full of days, full of years, and satisfied. And, and the problem is there are a lot of Christians that quite honestly are not satisfied. We're still looking for more. We want something else. We either want things, or we want an experience, or we want a feeling, or, or we want an event. And folks, discipleship is a long obedience in the right direction. It's just following a path and staying with God through thick and thin. Your Christianity ought to be able to help you through the hard times. It shouldn't be just something that's when things are good, I'm there. And it also shouldn't be something that you only show up at church when it's a hard time, because now you need God. God is not a Band-Aid, as I have on my hand. God is not just a little thing that you pick up along the way when it's convenient. He is to be present in every situation and circumstance. That's what he's trying to do in your life, to be there for all times. And, and quite honestly, I see Christians not doing much better than lost people. I mean, some things happen to their lives and they just freak out. They, they just go nuts. And, and you just begin to wonder, do you even have an inner resource to call on? 
Because, folks, God is not up there as a bellhop waiting to be rung to come to your defense. God is the abiding owner of your temple waiting to be used on a daily basis as your source and your sufficiency. Paul wasn't up and down. And by the way, Paul never saw his life as a victim. Have you noticed that in the last 30 years, everybody's a victim of something? I'm a victim, you know, and and I mean, people are blowing little things out of proportion. You know, I I, I, I see people saying, you know, well, well, my my dad mistreated me when I was growing up. And, And they think that a curfew is equal to abuse. And they're light years different. They think rules and regulations... I, I've been victimized. I needed, I needed parents to let me do whatever I wanted to do whenever I wanted to do it. No, you didn't. You'd have been dead by the time you were three. Yes, yeah, son, just walk out there in traffic. You're three years old. You're a big enough boy. You make up your own mind. Just go on out there. No. God sets boundaries in which he provides our sufficiency. And here's Paul. He's not having a pity party. He's not feeling like a victim. He hasn't gone on television on Oprah or Jerry Springer to tell his problems. He is going to God as his source. Look at verse 12. I have learned the secret, the key. There's a secret to contentment. There's a key to it. Now, mark this down somewhere. And you're going to have to think about this one for a while. There will be a difference in heaven in how we are. Our bodies and, and, and every, our resurrected body, all that's going to be different. But when you've been in heaven 10 million years, you will have no more of God than you have right now. When you've been in heaven... 10 million years, you'll have no more of God than you have right now because right now, the Holy Spirit of God is living inside of you and He is, you can't get any more of God than the Holy Spirit. He's already inside of you. The problem is not that God is lacking, the problem is that we're unwilling. Paul says, I've found the secret. Contentment is discovering what we already have in Christ. Verse 12, I know how to get along. I know how to live. I've learned the secret. You see, he was learning something here. This didn't just happen overnight. I got saved, and now all of a sudden I can figure out everything. It, It was a learning process, and we are all on a learning curve. How to live the contented life. But what happens is, as you and I begin to grow, and as we begin to mature, then all of a sudden we find out, you know, five years ago, that that would have just rattled me to the core, and I'm doing better now than I was. It's a growth. It's a maturity. It's a process in our life. It's not just a poof, and there it is, and it happens, but it is learning. I have learned the secret. I know how. There's a knowledge. There's an awareness. There's a maturity that's developing here of applying Christ to life situations. And rather than saying, I'm in such bad shape. I can't believe I'm in this bondage. I can't believe I'm in this situation. Why don't you just start saying, Lord, we've got a problem. 
and I need you to help me through this problem because I can't manage it on my own. I need your help. I need your wisdom. I need your discernment. I need your guidance. I need your peace. Now, does anybody here think that our God would turn down that request? No. God longs to care for his children. But sometimes his children don't ask him for help. Paul says, I've learned. And here's how he was content. First of all, he was content in the place God had him. He was content in the place God had him. My wife was talking to a lady one time, and, and uh, she said to her, somebody that lived here in Albany, she said to her, said, you don't seem very happy. And this is what the lady said to her. She's a Christian, married to a minister. She said, don't you know I've never been happy? I've never been happy anywhere we've lived. I've never been happy with anything we've had. I've never been happy. Don't you know that about me? I've never been happy. Why not? Hey, worst thing that can happen to you is you're going to die. If you die and know Jesus, then it's the best thing that happens to you because you're going to get to meet him face to face. So why can't you be happy? I mean, wake up and quit walking on your lip. I've learned to be content in the place God had me. Verse 11, in whatever state, in whatever circumstance. My wife and I have lived, I'm just going to go down the list here real quick. We've lived in Mississippi, Missouri, Oklahoma twice, South Carolina, Georgia twice, and Texas. I have learned in whatever state I'm in to be content. (laughs) You know what, folks? It's not the size of the city. It's not the number of restaurants. It's not how big the shopping mall is. It's not what the entertainment is that makes you happy. Because there are miserable people in New York City and in Washington and in Atlanta and in Kansas City and in Oklahoma City and in Dallas-Fort Worth. And there are miserable people in Doe Run and Sylvester and Albany and Dawson. You can be miserable anywhere or you can be content anywhere. You just find your place and make yourself at home. Paul says, I've learned to be content. Where was he writing this? From a prison. He didn't have prisoner rights. He didn't have a lawyer coming in to check on him. He's writing this from a prison. So whatever your place is, learn to adjust. Learn to adjust, whether he was feasting or fasting, rich or poor. 1 Timothy 6, 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Secondly, he was content that God's power was sufficient. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. God's power was sufficient. T.S. Eliot said, we are hollow people. We lack stamina. We lack tenacity. And I've just got to say a word here. My parents' generation that grew up during the Depression had something that the current generation knows nothing about. 
I mean, we quit at the first problem. The first time anybody disagrees with us, we go off and sulk. Hey, man, those people survived eating dust. They lived through a world war. You know, we think we've got problems. Our parents and grandparents survived things that would take most of us under the floor. Which says, we've not learned the lessons of life. And we don't want to grow up. And we don't want to be mature. We want somebody to always be bailing us out, either the government or somebody else to bail us out, because we don't want to be responsible for our lives. But God says that his power is sufficient. I can do anything God puts on me through the strength that he provides for me. Now, let's just talk here, and let me just get you to write this down. The devil's going to work in two ways, and and this is like those first two statements. If you'll grab these, you'll go a long way in your Christian life. This is the way the devil works on people. Number one, if you'll do this, I'll give you blank. Fill in the blank. The devil will come up to you and tempt you and say, you know, if you'd just do this, if you'd compromise in this area, I'll give you this. The problem is he can't give you anything because you have everything. You've got everything you need in Christ. The devil doesn't have anything to offer you. So if he's offering you something, he's a liar, which is exactly what he did to Adam and Eve in the garden. You'll become as God's. And they lost everything because they listened to him. They had everything and lost everything because they listened to the devil tempting them. Second statement. The devil will say, if you don't do this, I'll take away blank. And he motivates us by fear. If you don't do what I tell you to do, I'll take this away. I'll take away friends. I'll take away family. I'll take away your money. You see, he can't take it away because you don't own anything. It all belongs to God. So the only way the devil can take something away from you is if you own it. And he can take it away from you if you own it. But if you've given it to God, he can't take that away from you. So he can't threaten you with it. He can't use it against you because it's already the Lord's. So when the devil comes at you, just understand he's going to come with these offers and he's going to come with threats. And neither one are valid. Number three, he was content in the providence of God. Verse 10 and verse 19, uh, you, you read he originally wrote this letter to say thanks for them sending a gift. At one point they had not been able to send a gift, now they were. Paul writes a letter to say, I'm in prison, but I'm okay. Secondly, thanks for the offering. I'm in prison, but I was okay. Now, now I want you to look at this, because this, this is just a wonderful passage right here. Not that I speak from want. Paul says, I got your check, and I wanted to write you a thank you note for it, but, but I, I, I'm thrilled that I got this, but, but I wasn't worrying. I want you to understand something. Not that I speak from want. I wasn't sending Timothy down to the post office every day hoping that the check was in the mail. I'm glad you gave it, but I would have survived without it. Paul said, I I wasn't in danger. I wasn't stressed out. I'm grateful that you gave. I'm grateful that you did this. I'm grateful that you provided, but we could have done without it. I mean, I would have lived. God would have provided for my needs. You say, well, how did he know that? Because Paul knew his Old Testament. 
Elijah went by the creek and sat by the creek, and the creek dried up because Elijah prayed for it not to rain. And it says, and the ravens fed him there. Where? The place where God sent him to be fed. Now listen, folks. God won't supply your needs if you're not where God told you to be. The riches in Christ Jesus are deposited in the place where Christ Jesus is, not where you think he ought to be. And so the ravens fed him. So Paul's sitting there in prison saying, well, I'm not speaking of want. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. So if I'm going to know contentment, some of you are going to hate this, I have to be a giver. If you are not a giver, you will never know contentment. I don't care what you try, you won't know it. So there's three things. First of all, Paul comes to three conclusions. It's a blessing to the one who receives it. Verse 18, I've received everything in full and have an abundance. I'm amply supplied. It blesses God, verse 18, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. You see, when I give, I bless God. It blesses those who give, verse 14, you have done well. They had given out of their meager resources, now they're giving out of their abundance. And this is through, true all the way through the Bible. Now I want you to listen because we don't have time for you to turn to them. And I want you to make note of these references. And, and I'm going to dare you to take God at his word. Matthew, uh, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, God says, I dare you. God says, I dare you to test me. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer. Some of you are being devoured. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. God says, I dare you to test me and let me prove myself to you. What I can do for you. And see, that's, that's all God wants you to do. Just trust him. That he will do what he says he will do. That God's going to open up the windows of heaven. And there'll be ways, by the way, and that's not always material. Sometimes it's spiritual. And spiritual blessings are greater than material blessings anyway. There's another verse, Matthew 19, 27. Then Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? He's a good Baptist, good tightwad. I've left everything. What are you going to do for me? And Jesus said to him, I say to you that you have followed me in the regeneration. When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now that was for them. Verse 29, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. And then Luke 6, 38, which is what Stephen read just a few moments ago. Finally, contentment is daily abiding in his power and on his promises. Now, let's just go back to 
Philippians 4. You're going to have to listen a little faster. Philippians 4, and let's look at what happens when I abide in Christ, when I'm living life on His terms and on His level. Chapter 4 and verse 1, I'll be faithful. I'll stand fast. Chapter 4 and verse 4, I'll be joyful. Chapter 4 and verse 5, I'll be prayerful. Verse 6, I'll be thankful. Verse 6, I'll be peaceful. Verse 7, I'll be content. I'll be confident. Verse 11, Paul was standing on the promises. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So let's look at it. First of all, it was personal. My God. God's not making a generic promise to a generic group. He's making a promise to people. My God. It was positive. Will supply. My God will supply. It was pointed. All your needs. All your needs. It was plentiful according to His riches. Now let me ask you something. Do you think God is watching the stock market? Do you think He turned to Jesus and said, Son, we lost money this week. No. It's not according to, it's not out of, it's according to. And his riches are unlimited. Listen, he paves streets in things we wear on our hands. He makes gates out of pearls. God's limited in nothing. It is plentiful and it is powerful in Christ Jesus. Now, according to the Bible, God has at least four accounts that we can draw from. Four accounts that we can draw from for his riches. His riches of his grace, Ephesians 1, 7. The riches of his glory, Ephesians 1, 18. The riches of his goodness, Romans 2, 4. And the riches of his wisdom, Romans 11 and verse 33. Out of one of those accounts is everything I need to live. The riches of his grace, the riches of his glory, the riches of his goodness, and the riches of his wisdom. One of the early church fathers was asked how he could be so content. This is what he said. It consists in nothing more than making a right use of my eyes. In whatever state I am, I first look up to heaven and remember that my principal business here is to get there. Then I look down upon the earth and call to mind how small a place I occupy in it when I die and am buried. I then look around in the world and observe what multitudes there who are in many respects more unhappy than myself. Thus I learn where true happiness is placed, where all our cares must end, and what little reason I have to complain. Let's stand. Our heads are bowed. Our eyes are closed. I invite you today to come to Christ as your source of contentment. If you are lost, you'll never find contentment outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you are saved, you'll never find contentment until you find Christ as your source and as your sufficiency. I invite you today to come and allow...